The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Let's go ahead and go to God's Word together. And this is true history written by Luke, who was became an associate of the Apostle Paul and a fellow missionary of the Apostle Paul. And it may be because he became at one point Paul's doctor or physician at a crisis time of need as Paul was out on the mission field. And then providentially, God brought Luke into his life, who was actually a medical doctor and maybe helped Paul. We know that Paul, as he wrote to Galatians, he said he got really, really sick, terribly sick. Something it was either malaria or some kind of eye disease or it was very unpleasant and obvious. Yet they were gracious and welcomed him nevertheless. And it could have been on some of his travels, either the first or second trip where he actually met Luke on the road during missions trips. And then Luke ended up staying with Paul's ministry almost to the end of his life. And then God uses Luke to write the book of Acts. So let's go ahead and look at Acts chapter 15, 1 through 29. And before we go through this narrative story, rather quickly, the way that Luke wrote it, I just got two main questions that I think this passage answers. Question number one, and they're relevant for us today, very relevant. Question number one, what must a person do to be saved? What must a person do to become a Christian? What must a sinner do to become born again? What must a fallen human do to get all their sins forgiven? That's what that means. What must a person do to become a Christian, a child of God, to receive eternal life? These are all synonymous terms used in Scripture. What must a person do in order to be saved? That's pretty controversial even among Christians sometimes in how they answer that question. <clears throat> That's the controversy at hand that is debated here and then very clearly answered. So that question will be answered in this passage, hopefully eliminating all confusion. Corollary question, in addition to what must a person do to be saved, is what must a person believe to be saved? Another way to say it is, what's the minimum amount that a person needs to believe in order to be saved? It's another very debatable, highly contentious question. I believe that's answered as well, clearly in this passage for us. So by the time we get to verse 29... Those two questions will have been answered, and like I said, they are relevant for us. They are pertinent for us. Relevant, especially if you're a Christian today, you're truly born again. That clarifies in your mind, in a very succinct manner, as a believer, those two questions, knowing the answer. What must you do to be saved, and what must you believe in order to be saved? That helps us as Christians so that we can more effectively share the gospel with those who are not Christians keeps our priorities right. We are focused. We're not overemphasizing secondary matters or adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel. So answering these two questions is helpful for us as Christians. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're not, you're not born again. For whatever reason you're here, um, these questions are for you as well. And hopefully the text will answer some questions you might have regarding those questions. So let's go ahead and look at it. Just to set the context, uh, we are now 15 years or so into the beginning of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ 
founded the church with his 12 apostles. He died, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven around 29 A.D. Shortly thereafter, his 12 apostles started the, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, through the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Their headquarters were in Jerusalem. Their mission was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God blessed, and they saw many people get saved. And they established the Christian church for the first time in Jerusalem. And they went all throughout Jerusalem and Judea and that entire area. And for the first five years, those coming to believe in Jesus Christ, for the most part, were exclusively Jews. Jews were becoming Christians. And so for the first five plus years, the church of Jesus Christ, the Christian church was homogeneous almost in that all the believers were Jewish. Then a transition takes place in about Acts chapter 8 and 9 where God now starts to send people out to preach the gospel to non-Jews. Samaritans who were like half-Jews and then also just the Gentiles and Greeks who were not Jewish. And they start believing in the gospel. And so now you have Gentiles trickling in and starting to get saved. And this is six, seven, eight, nine years into the existence of the church. But still the Jews are the majority. And then God sends, saves Saul turns him into Paul the Apostle, former Jew, former Pharisee, former Christian killer, now missionary par excellence and even apostle of Jesus Christ with a special mission designated as the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see him begin, his ministry is launched full-time in Acts chapter 13 and 14 where he went on a two-year missionary trip with his partner Barnabas and they went into, they traveled over 1,200 miles, went into many towns and cities, mostly pagan, Gentile, Greek, Roman, non-Jewish. And they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere they went. They saw many, 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 many Gentiles believe in the gospel and get saved. They finished their two-year journey. They go back home to their sending church, which is in Antioch of Syria, up 300 miles north of Jerusalem. They come back, Barnabas and Paul, and they tell the congregation, they gather them together, they have a mission celebration, say, here's what God has done through the gospel and our mission the last two years. Absolutely amazing. God has opened the door like never before to the Gentiles. And they are believing by simply understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a revival. Church at Antioch is a mega church. And all these other churches that are planted and Gentiles are coming to know the Lord. The Gentiles are burgeoning and even becoming almost the, the majority in the Christian church universal now. And so there are some Jews who are threatened by that. And there's a controversy that arises. And some of the believing or professing Christian Jews in Jerusalem seem to have always been somewhat skeptical of this new guy, Paul, and his emphasis in his ministry and his preaching because he was going around telling Jews, but especially Gentiles, that you can be forgiven of your sin and you can be born again and you can be saved and you can know the God of the universe. You can even know Yahweh, not by doing good works, not by doing the law of Moses, not by getting circumcised, but simply by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that, admitting you are a sinner separated from God. You need forgiveness. And God's solution was Jesus Christ coming down to this earth as the God-man, lived a perfect life and offered himself as a substitute for sin. God the Father punished him for the sins of the world. Jesus died, rose again, went back into heaven, and is calling people 
to be saved unto himself. And if you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you repent of your sin, and you ask God to forgive you over your sin and to change you, to make you a Christian and adopt you into his family, and just by believing that message by faith, not by human works, God will answer that prayer and he will save you. He'll adopt you into his family. He will make you a Christian, a child of God, eternally secure and in the palm of his hand for the rest of this life and also eternity to come. That was Paul's message. Salvation by grace, through faith, apart from works. And so that's what he was preaching. So many people were celebrating that. But there were these skeptical Jews, John in Jerusalem, who professed to be Christians. They professed to believe in Jesus as the risen Lord. So on the surface, they, they were, looked like Christians. Probably some of them were indeed real Christians, but they had a hang-up. They were prejudiced towards Gentiles. They were their whole life. They thought Gentiles, non-Jews, were dirty, unclean, unkosher. And based on the Old Testament, in order to enter God's community, you had to enter through circumcision. You had to get circumcised. Then you had to obey the whole Mosaic law, all 613 laws. And then if you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you embrace the gospel and you become a Christian. So some of these Jews believed that uh, there's an open door to Gentiles in order to get to know God, but they also believe there's a screen door that they also had to pass through in order to get to that door. And that screen door was circumcision. That screen door was the law of Moses. That's what some of these professing Christian Jews in Jerusalem believed. And so uh, they are not happy with Paul's ministry. They're not happy that he's just going around saying, believe in Jesus, it's by grace through faith, apart from works, and you will be saved. They think that is too simplistic. They think it undermines the Old Testament. They think it undermines the Mosaic law. They're even kind of jealous about it, that these Gentiles can be on equal ground, forgiven by God on that simple basis. So they don't... They are taking Paul's ministry to task. And they begin actually attacking Paul, his gospel, his credibility as an apostle and a messenger of God. And they even go after his churches and congregations that he planted. And they follow up, and they were called the Judaizers. They're trying to Judaize or make Gentile Christians become Jews first in order to become Christians. That's what they were doing. So they're tracking Paul, following his ministry, his two-year ministry, all the cities and churches that he went to in Galatia, Telling them, you must be, yeah, you believed in Jesus, that's good. But if you, first, you also have to get circumcised and obey the law of Moses, too, as well, to become a Christian. So it was God's grace plus human works. That's what they were saying. That's what they're preaching. Paul finds out about it. They're undermining his ministry. They're polluting the gospel. They're distorting the truth. They're shutting the gate of salvation in the face of sinners. And some of these Jews come from the city of Jerusalem and they go up to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are after their missions trip. And that's where we pick up from last week. And so let's go ahead and look at it. That's the context. Some of these men, we don't know who they are, verse 1, some men came down from Judea or Jerusalem. Came down because Jerusalem is way up high in terms of elevation. And so they literally went down, descended down, but then they went up 300 miles to Antioch. These men, these Jewish men, these professing Christians, Jewish men, who had been circumcised, trained in the law of Moses, raised in the synagogue. And they're going up very specifically to confront Paul and Barnabas and undermine their ministry and preach a different gospel, that you're saved by grace through faith plus the works of circumcision in Moses. And that's what they do. So these some men, they're nameless men. Galatians 2 hints at that possibly they were Friends of James, who's the head of the Jerusalem church. 
James didn't send them there to teach this false doctrine, but they were associates of James, the head of the church. Not James the apostle, but James the half-brother of Jesus. So some men came uh, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and they began teaching the brethren at Paul and Barnabas' church there in Antioch. And here's what they were preaching. Unless you Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So they are overturning what Paul said. Paul already told them, you're saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you repent from your sins, you are saved. They already heard that from Paul. It's been declared. So this is categorically undermining their work. This is a false gospel. Paul and Barnabas catch wind of it. They see this entourage from Jerusalem, so-called friends of James, the pillar in the Jerusalem church, and very quickly Paul realizes what they're doing. They are invading the church with this false works righteousness teaching. And Paul is incensed. He gets angry. He speaks up. He gets passionate. He has courage. This is the most important issue in the world. It is the souls of men. And you see that in verse 2. When Paul and Barnabas heard about this, and they had great dissension and debate with these men. And the Greek words are very specific, great dissension. Uh, one translation says fierce dissension. They weren't punching each other physically, but it was a fist of cuffs in terms of words and fights and arguing going on. And it was prolonged. And it was heated. And it was not happy times. Great dissension and debate. They're going back and forth, back and forth. Probably arguing from the scriptures and the Old Testament scriptures. Going toe-to-toe. These guys would not back down, but neither would Paul. But there was no resolution in this church. The church is affected. The saints are watching. They are uncomfortable. They are disrupted. They're probably getting quite anxious and weary. Wow, who do we believe? This is the the entourage from Jerusalem where the main apostles are Peter. Certainly they have authority to know what they're talking about. Yet this is Paul who brought us the gospel. He himself is an apostle of God. We saw his miracles. Very confusing. So there was no resolution. And so the church, through the wisdom of God, probably the leading of the Spirit, prompted them to encourage Paul and Barnabas, well, this is not resolved. You need to go up and resolve. This is The origin of this problem is in Jerusalem. We need to go get a solution in Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas, can you go to Jerusalem and talk to Peter and the apostles and James and deal with this matter and get a resolution so there's clarity? And they, they agreed after a long debate. The brethren of the church determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them would go up to Jerusalem. So it's not just Paul and Barnabas, but also other believers from the church at Antioch as witnesses. Very good idea. And they send them up to the apostles and the elders concerning this very specific issue. What is the issue? What must a person do to be saved? What must a Gentile do to be saved? What must a Greek do to be saved? What must a non-Jew do to be saved? That's the question. Does he just have to believe in the gospel or does he have to believe in the gospel plus get circumcised and obey the law of Moses? Or here's another simple way of saying it. Does a Gentile need to become a Jew before becoming a Christian? Because that's what these Jewish guys believed. And after all, their argument was, well, we were all Jews before we were Christians. All the apostles were Jews before they were Christians. They all got circumcised before they became Christians. John the Baptist was a Jew before he became a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself got circumcised, the Savior himself. Abraham got circumcised. He's the father of the Jews. Moses got circumcised. He gave the Decalogue or the law of Moses for the Jews. 
So they had a very strong argument. And it was confusing people. It was even confusing the apostles and the elders in the church of Jerusalem. So there's no clarity. Verse 3, therefore being sent on their way, Paul and Barnabas, okay, good. That's a good idea. We're going to go 300 miles and we're going to go up to headquarters in Jerusalem and we're going to resolve this and we're going to take it on head to head. And Paul and Barnabas, they go and they're taking some brothers with them. And along the way, they're going back to visiting some new Gentile churches in Phoenicia and Samaria. And they're giving testimony, Paul is, of how people are getting saved through the simple gospel. They don't have to become Jews first to become Christians. And the Gentiles hearing this are are just celebrating and rejoicing. Praise God. Praise God. That salvation and getting right with God is not contingent upon me. Because I am weak, I am inadequate, I am sinful, I am wicked to the core. I cannot save myself. I need the grace of God. That's really what they were celebrating. The beauty of the simple God-initiated gospel. So they're sharing that with all these saints, the Gentiles. And the saints, were bringing, uh, they were bringing great joy to all the brethren, the end of verse 3. And when uh, Paul and Barnabas arrived at Jerusalem, uh, no doubt, Peter and the apostles and James, the leader of the church, heard that they were coming and that they were going to have a huge meeting. They probably even knew what the topic was about. Nevertheless, they welcomed Paul and Barnabas as brothers in the Lord. And so Paul and Barnabas were received by the church in Jerusalem and the apostles and elders. And Paul and Barnabas reported all that God had done with them on their two-year missionary trip and how God had saved many, many Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas begin the council formally by allowing to speak up and give their testimony. And so the best we can tell is the council was a formal meeting to solve a problem, specifically headed by James, the head of the church, the 12 apostles with Peter as the spokesman, and also elders who had been established, Christian elders there. So there's a plurality of godly men leading this church and who are the council to listen to all the evidence, and then render a verdict on behalf of the church. On behalf of God, really. That's the setting. And apparently, the church at Jerusalem, just the saints, the lay folks, were allowed to come and be a part of it and listen and even discuss and maybe ask questions. Town hall meeting. That's what you got going on here. And Paul and Barnabas are allowed to speak formally in verse 4, and they do. Long testimony. Probably much celebration when they heard it, but... Not everybody's satisfied there because verse 5 says some of the sect of the Pharisees, some of the heresios, heresy, the, the, the party of the Pharisees, the sect of the That's where we get the word heresy from. That's the Greek word. Heresy means um, a, a party spirit, having a party spirit, a very narrow-minded, exclusivist opinion about doctrine. That's what heresy is. So the heresy or the sect or the party of the Pharisees who claimed to be Christians were also at this meeting. They heard Paul and Barnabas' testimony and they said, we don't believe it. And they spoke up in protest. They believed, they stood up and they said, it is necessary, regardless of what Paul just said and Barnabas, we still believe it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So that is the allegation. It is salvation is by grace plus works. So let's go on now to point number two, and that's the apostolic investigation. This needs to be investigated at length, thoroughly. This is a major issue, and it takes some time. And the apostles need to take the lead in investigating this, and they do. 
So there is a formal investigation. And, and Peter takes the lead. And God uses Peter and speaks through him. He's a very important person. Peter used to believe that salvation was by grace plus works of the law and being a Jew. He used to believe that. Then God changed his heart. God gave him a revelation five years before with that hev- uh, sheet that came down from heaven where God declared Gentiles are clean. They're just as you and the Jews and the Gentiles are in the same spot, as dirty as can be, but begin- can be saved by the grace of God through the simple gospel. Peter, you're no different. They're no different than you. And Peter believed that. He understood that. But he was getting confused, though. Peter's getting confused by these Judaizers, by these Jews who profess to believe in Jesus and yet are making these arguments that are causing Peter to sway and compromise. Ooh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, we don't just abandon the Old Testament. Jesus taught from the Old Testament. Jesus authoritatively declared things from the Old Testament. So being a Christian doesn't mean you jettison and just reject the whole Old Testament. That's true. So he, he was confused at, at one point. As a matter of fact, I read it last week. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts this history. And he said, these guys were so effective, these Judaizers from Jerusalem, at spreading deceit and polluting the gospel. They were so persuasive and so effective that, that Peter was totally won over by them. He, Peter totally compromised and Peter totally bought into this idea. Yeah, oh yeah, that's right. I used to preach... Gentiles can be saved by grace through faith apart from works. But no, I think I'm changing my mind. Yeah, you do. You need to get circumcised and you need to obey the law of Moses. And Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face publicly in front of everybody there in Antioch at the church at Antioch. Here's Peter, head apostle, elder of the church, trained by Jesus, getting direct revelation at times from almighty God. And yet he made a huge compromise here. And Paul exposed him to everybody. He just reprimanded him up and down publicly. Called him to repent of that wrong thinking and his cowardice. And the beautiful thing is Peter responded. Peter responded. He didn't justify himself. He didn't say, well, Peter, I was an apostle before you. Or, well, Paul, I was an apostle before you. Peter responded positively in humility. And we see the fruits of that here. So in verse 6, Peter now sees clearly. He stumbled through this, but now he sees it clearly. And so here's his testimony in the investigation. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So they probably dismissed the, the public crowd, took it into private session, the apostles, the elders, and they're going to assess the testimonies and the evidence and the scriptures. That's verse 6. Then at verse 7, after they had been, after there had been much debate, see that this went on for a long time and it went back and forth, back and forth. Much debate, much heated debate. Maybe it, it, times got uncomfortable. Some of you would probably, if you were able to see, you probably would have thought it got ugly. Some of you would have been scratching your head thinking, wait, how can Christians talk this way? I didn't know Christians could raise their voice and turn red and get passionate and even argue with fellow Christians. Is that ethical? Is that right? Can Christians get this angry and upset and uptight and even raise the volume and yell? Well, yes. Sometimes we do it sinfully, and sometimes it's righteous indignation. Jesus is the model of this. There were times when truth was at stake. Jesus always flawlessly, sinlessly spoke up when he had to with great passion. Woe to you, Pharisees, he said in Matthew 23 publicly in front of the whole crowd. And he rebuked the Pharisees publicly, out loud, raising his voice. At times publicly, turning over tables. So Jesus got physical. I wouldn't recommend that for us because we are... Sinful, unless you're a prophet. 
or an apostle, and I don't think we have those today. But Jesus was perfect, and when he got angry, he was manifesting the holy indignation of Almighty God. And that is how God is moving on Peter, how he's moving on Paul, to have such strong convictions about this, not backing down on such an important matter. So Peter gets up, says to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Five years ago, when I was doing my little missions over in Samaria and on the coast there of the Mediterranean, when I left Jerusalem, that by my mouth as an apostle, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And I told you about Cornelius, Gentile who got saved. And it was awesome, came home, reported to you, and after some explanation, And some revelation I got from God, you all believed and you rejoiced. And we all accepted it. The Gentiles were saved by God's grace. Remember that five years ago? Verse 8, and God who knows the heart. God knows their heart. God knew when the Gentiles believed sincerely. Only God knows the heart, by the way. Man looks at the outside. Only God looks at the heart. Only God knows the heart. Men judge outer appearances. Legalists judge the outside. God judges the heart. That's what these Judaizers are. They're legalists. They're only looking on the outside. They're looking literally on the outside, the physical condition of circumcision. They're not looking at the heart because they can't look at the heart. That's why Peter says this. God is the only one who can look at the heart. And God's diagnosis is amazing. So when you look at the inside, and that's what spiritual transformation is all about. It's not external works. It's a transformation on the inside. That God initiates, that God does. And that's what Peter's highlighting here. God, who knows the heart, testified to the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit when they believed, just like he gave us Jews when we believed at Pentecost. There was no difference. Verse 9, and God made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles regarding believing in the gospel and giving them the spirit and cleansing their hearts by faith. God made them totally pure, totally forgiven when they believed the gospel apart from circumcision, apart from obedience to the law. This has already been established. Now, therefore, verse 10, why do you, Judaizers, some of you Jews, why do you put God, why do you want to put God to the test? You know what that means? Why do you want to make God angry? That's what that phrase means. Put God to the test. Makes him angry. That's dangerous. Why do you want to make God angry and put him to the test by placing upon the neck of the Gentile disciples a yoke, and that's the law of Moses, that we learn the hard way that we can't get saved by doing the work of the law of Moses. We can't get saved by doing the works of the law. It's impossible. It's a heavy, impossible yoke. Why do you want to do that to the Gentiles? We couldn't do it. The Jews couldn't do it. We're condemned in the Old Testament for failing. That isn't even why it was given. We perverted the law thinking that we could get saved by doing it. That isn't why God gave the law. And why do you want to foist that upon the Gentile disciples who've already believed the gospel, making them carry a heavy yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse 11, but we believe that we are saved. So here's Peter, as an apostle, his formal declaration through the Spirit of God after convening with the other leaders in the church. This is Peter's formal declaration, verse 11. But we believe that we are saved. We Jews are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. We're saved through grace, not works. That's his main point of emphasis. In the same way as the Gentiles are also saved. So Peter basically is assessing the allegation that they made, 
that you're saved by grace plus circumcision and works. And Peter says, no, that is wrong. That is unbiblical. That is illegitimate. You're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. By the way, he says in verse 11, but we believe that the Jews are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. We, that's kind of backwards. We would think, in light of what's going on here, that Peter would have said, well, we believe that the Gentiles are saved the same way we, are, we the Jews are. But that's not what he says. He's emphasizing the grace of God here apart from works. Then in verse 12, after Peter is done, makes his formal declaration as an apostle of Almighty God, that salvation is by grace through faith apart from works, all the people kept silent. And then they were listening to Barnabas and Paul, who gave further testimony. And Paul and Barnabas were relating and confirming what Peter said. And Paul's apostleship was questioned by many because he was a Johnny King come lately. He was not one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. So some people questioned whether he was legit at all. So Paul spoke up and said, well, actually, I went out, I preached the gospel, I agree with Peter, and God endorsed my ministry by virtue of signs and wonders, or miracles, miracles and wonders that God had done through me when I went out and preached. And that's how God authenticates the truth of his word, through miracles. And that phrase is repeated throughout the book of Acts early on in reference to Peter and the apostles. So just as Peter and the apostles were authenticated early on with signs and wonders, so also Paul was authenticated in terms of his message by signs and wonders that God allowed him to do. And that was very important for Jews. They knew all the way back in history, all the prophets for the most part, Moses himself was authenticated in terms of what he preached by the miracles he was able to do. So that's a powerful testimony. It's really ironclad. But they're not done yet. So after the investigation, let's go on to point number three, and that's the scriptural proclamation. It even gets more formal in terms of the decision being made here. And that's where James takes the leadership here. James half-brother of Jesus Christ, not one of the 12 apostles, but rose in prominence after the church was established as he was called to be a unique apostle, he's called at times, and leader of the church. Peter was not the leader of the Jerusalem church. James was. This is not James the apostle. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who used to mock Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. James got saved. After Jesus rose again from the dead, he made a special appearance to his half-brother James saved him, and then called him into ministry. James was a phenomenal leader. And so here James becomes the spokesperson and makes his assessment. Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, Paul and Barnabas, then James answered saying, brethren, okay, everybody listen. Here it is. Simeon or Simon, verse 14, Simon Peter, you just heard him. He's related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. So Peter just told us about how he took the gospel to Cornelius, the non-Jew, and God bless that. Verse 15. But not only Peter as an apostle is affirmed by God, but this agrees with scriptures. As Jews, we believe in the Old Testament, the scriptures. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So it's a plurality of prophets, not just one prophet. The prophets would agree. Basically, the whole Testament agree to what? Well, that the door of salvation is open to the Gentiles, not just the Jews. Just as it is written. So he quotes authoritatively from the Bible. He's quoting from Amos. Amos, a smaller prophet called a minor prophet. Amos lived around 750 B.C. He's quoting from Amos chapter 9 now, verses 11 and 12. And Amos made a prophecy. 
when Judah and northern Israel were about to be judged by God for their sin, God promised, I am going to judge Israel and Judah, but I'm going to raise them up again because they are my people. And I'm going to preserve Israel. I'm going to raise up David. I'm going to raise up the descendants of David. I'm going to raise, I'm going to preserve the kingdom and the right to reign as king through the line of David. That's what this prophecy is talking about. And at some point, through the line of King David, another will come. It's messianic. Jesus will come from the loins of David. Jesus will have the right to reign as king on the earth literally someday, but when he comes the first time as spiritual king over every soul that would repent and believe in him. And when Jesus offers himself as the sacrifice for sin and is the spiritual king in fulfillment of Scripture, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. doesn't matter. Male or female, doesn't matter. They make a lot of money or no money, doesn't matter. Slave or free, it doesn't matter. And it's not by circumcision. It's calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. They might be saved. And when that happens, you won't believe how many Gentiles are going to be saved. There are going to be Gentiles from all over the world who are going to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. And it's through the simple gospel. It's not through circumcision. It's through the grace of God. So I just summarized for you the Hebrew and the Greek of the Old Testament prophecies of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, stated here. So the words of the prophets agree, says James, and then he quotes from Amos, after these things, I will return, says God, and I will rebuild the tabernacle or the tent of the house of David, which has fallen from judgment, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore the tent of David, verse 17, so that for the purpose of, so that salvation will reach the ends of the earth to the rest of mankind, all the Gentiles, and so that the Gentiles may seek the Lord. How? Through the gospel, not through circumcision. And as a result, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name will be saved. The phrase, who are called by my name, is very important because that was a phrase reserved for the special relationship Jesus had with Israel in the Old Testament. And now he's giving that name to Gentiles. Those who are called by my my precious ones who came to know me through Jesus. Absolutely amazing. Verse 18 says, the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And so... James is saying this shouldn't be a surprise. It was in the Bible. It was in the Old Testament. It was God's plan from all eternity to save Jews and Gentiles alike by grace through faith apart from works. Amen. Verse 19, therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles through the simple gospel of the apostle Paul. And by the way, I mean, he could have gone on and said, because Paul does this in the book of Galatians that Paul writes at the same time. One of the main arguments that Paul makes to the Gentiles is that you are saved by the simple gospel apart from works and don't let those people telling you that Abraham got circumcised in order to become a believer or Christian because he didn't because Abraham got saved in Genesis 15 by grace through faith. He got circumcised two chapters later after he was already saved. Take that, Judaizer. And Paul's argument is that in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, and in the book of Galatians. Abraham, the first Jew, got saved by grace through faith before he was circumcised. Powerful, powerful argument. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble them, verse 20, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. 
verse 21, for Moses, the Old Testament, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. What is that all about? So just to summarize, because it can be very complicated, James is just saying salvation is by grace, through faith apart from works, for the, from the, for the Gentiles, apart from works. They're not bound to the Mosaic law. They're not saved through the Old Testament and all of its works and circumcision. But the Gentiles, when they become Christians, they just need to live a godly life. And that's going to be point number four. And I'll explain that. And that's number four, the, the public declaration. James formalizes this with the testimony of two or three witnesses, the apostles, the elders, writes a letter, issues it to all the Gentiles, and preserved in Scripture forevermore. That salvation is by grace, through faith, apart from works. And here's what he said in verse 22, and it still stands today. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch, uh, with Paul and Barnabas. So they're going to send Paul and Barnabas back to their home church with a letter resolving the issue authoritatively as spokespersons for God through divine revelation and not just Paul and Barnabas, but a testimony of two or three witnesses going with them so that Paul and Barnabas can't be falsely accused when they get up there. Oh, well, you guys just made this up along the way. We don't know this is what the church of Jerusalem believed. So this is validating truth with the testimony of two or three witnesses, which is always God's way of validating objectively truth. So he sends along with uh, Paul and Barnabas, Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas. Now, Judas and Silas were prophets. They were New Testament prophets. They were men of integrity. So they're going to go along with Paul and Barnabas. Paul's going to hook up, uh, a, a strike up a friendship with Silas through all this. They become very close. They were leading men among the brethren there in Jerusalem. They had great credibility. Everybody apparently agreed. Yeah, Silas, you can't argue with Silas and Judas, man. They are rock solid. Verse 23, and they sent this letter by them. And here's what the letter said. To the Gentiles, the apostles and brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, that's where Paul and Barnabas went and did their ministry, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your soul. So here James is saying, yeah, apparently some guys went up from Jerusalem and they said they knew me, James, and they, they did. They're brothers in the Lord. They're Christians down there. And, but I didn't send them with a message. I did not send them in endorsing this heresy that they're bringing among you. Just We need to be clear about that. So they went there teaching unauthorized. It's important. We heard that some of our number went up there and they were unsettling you. They were distracting you. They were troubling you. Verse 25. So it seemed good to us here at the Jerusalem church, having become of one mind, totally unified. That's the 10th time that phrase is used in the book of Acts. God wants unity among his people. To select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul did. He almost got stoned to death. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by the word of by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than the following essentials. So just breathe, believe the gospel by grace through faith. You become a Christian. But once you become a Christian, now what he's going to say is just practical advice. Then you need to leave a godly. You need to live a godly life. In other words, you can't 
embrace Jesus, get saved, and then keep living the way you used to when you were a total pagan with all your sexual immorality and worshiping at the pagan temples. You can't do that anymore. Don't associate yourself with that anymore. I'm not saying they do that to get saved, but you are a new person, you have new associations, you have new desires, new loyalties, and you need to live accordingly and pursue righteousness in your personal life. Starting with idol worship. Before you became a Christian, you worshipped countless idols in the temples. You cannot do that anymore. That's not the Mosaic Law. That's like Genesis chapter 2. There's one God. And that's affirmed in the New Testament. The Epistle of John said that. That's not Mosaic Law stuff. 1 John, John's telling Christians, quit the idol stuff. Get, get idolatry out of your life. And so he makes four points of emphasis to help these Gentiles live in accordance with what they believe, live in accordance with what God has made them new in Christ. In other words, they live such a sinful, compromised, debauched, immoral life for years that when they became a Christian, everything didn't just change in one day. They they were bringing over baggage from their previous... Many of us struggle with that. You bring over baggage from your previous life. Say you were an idol worshiper your whole life as a Hindu and then you become a Christian. You, you might have a little bit of a struggle there. Say you're a Roman Catholic your whole life, praying to statues and Mary and whatever else, and you become a Christian. Then it's like, hmm, you've got to make a transition. Say you grew up your whole life totally in, enmeshed in immorality and pornography and porneia and compromised sexual lifestyles and patterns, and you become a Christian. You're not just going to necessarily eliminate all that from your past life and those deep patterns of behavior. There's a transition. And what he's doing is you need to set up some boundaries and some clear, basic lines of demarcation that you need to absolutely put away from your presence now that you are a Christian. The battle will still go on in your soul, as he says in Galatians and Romans. But on the outside, there are boundaries you need to create to protect yourself and also not cause other brothers, Christians, Jewish Christians, to stumble by watching your behavior. Don't go to the immoral, grotesque, sexual false goddess temples for public worship anymore where they literally do the word here is porneia pornography sexual sin and here's the four things they did at the temple sacrifice verse 29 sacrificed idols so it was idol worship in the temples they were all over the place uh, abstained from blood what was that they drank blood from animals straight from the animal rip its head off and just drink the blood that was condemned in genesis chapter 9 long before the law was given don't do that if you're a christian the life is in the blood this is not Mosaic law stuff. Abstain from strangled things. That was Genesis chapter 9. When God told Noah, you can eat animals, but you've got to eat them the right way. And, and then abstain from pornography in all of its forms. That's Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Sex is for man and woman that God brings together for life. Monogamous, heterosexual, holy covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that is porneia. Don't do that. So that's what he's talking about. And it's a good reminder. Now that you're a Christian, pursue sanctification. Pursue holiness in your basic life and be a witness for him. Well, let me close as we go into communion now. To help prepare our hearts for communion. Communion, by the way, is an invitation to anybody that's a Christian. If you know Jesus Christ. And you came to know Jesus Christ by believing in the simple gospel. That Jesus 
as God came to this earth, died on a cross as a substitute for your sin. God the Father punished him for your sin that you deserved, that I deserved, that he was buried, rose again the third day and ascended into heaven, and now reigns as king of kings and high priest for all who believe in him. And if you believe that about Jesus and you're convicted that you're a sinner and you've confessed your sin and asked God to save you, and he answered that prayer and saved you, and you're born again, and you're a Christian. You're now in the family of God, and you are eternally secure in the family of God. And our ushers, you can go ahead and come forward now and begin uh, distributing the elements while we're meditating on the basic truth of communion. So you believe the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. And the good news is God's given a solution to save us from the bad news. And that's our sin that separates us from God. And he does it by his grace, through faith, apart from works. And so just a reminder that we are saved by what Jesus did and nothing we can do. So we don't earn forgiveness of sin. We don't help God out. We don't earn forgiveness of sin by taking communion, by the way. You know that taking communion today is not going to have God like you better. It's not going to forgive any of your sins. Getting baptized doesn't forgive any of your sins. Going to church doesn't forgive any of your sins. Reading your Bible doesn't either. And being and doing good deeds. It's all the works of Jesus, not our works. What we do at communion, it's a reminder. Jesus said that, remember me when you take communion. It's a time of remembrance. Remembering Jesus, who he is, and what he did on your behalf. And also remembering very clearly and realistically about how we are sinful. Maybe there's something on your heart. Maybe something sinful you did this morning getting ready for church. The way you talk to somebody in your family. Maybe it was yesterday or something that happened. That's what you lay before God in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me, saving me. And God, now I know you promise cleansing for me, ongoing cleansing because of your death for me, your child. That's what communion is for. Jesus wants us to remember who he is and why he died for sin. And also he wants us to remember his coming again. That's to give us hope. This life is hard. But the good news is he's coming again. He's returning for his own to reward all of us who are his dear and beloved children, to rescue us, and also to finally perfect us, eliminate the sin that's in our own nature and give us a perfect resurrection body. That is yet coming. That's how the world ends. And actually, that's not the end of the world. It's the beginning of eternity with our beloved Savior. So that's the meaning of communion. So I just want to give you a moment uh, quietly while the piano's playing is just meditate for a minute or so in your own heart. Talk to Jesus, for those of you who know him. Ask for ongoing forgiveness of sin and thank you. Thank him for all that he's done on our behalf.
Jesus told his disciples that the bread and the cup represent his life and his death on behalf of his own. And he said, do this in his remembrance. So let's eat and drink in his memory. And where you're sitting, you can, if you could bow your heads and close your eyes with me, we'll commit our time to the Lord in prayer before our last song, The Wonderful Cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, the opportunity again to worship with the saints. The great reminder from the truth of your word about the simplicity of the gospel, the good news. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being a perfect Savior, for loving sinners, for coming down and willfully dying as a substitute for our sin. Father, we thank you for your power that raised Jesus, your Savior, your Son, from the dead, thus conquering sin and death and hell, Satan himself on our behalf. We give you all the glory. We pray now that you go before us as we commit this day and our week to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.